Hi, it's Nick Brown, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood. Welcome to the March Atoms. As always, I'm joined by Rachel Egbeko, our Senior Editor. Hi, Rachel. How's your week been? Hi, Nick. Yeah, it's been a, an interesting uh, week. The last uh, times we talked about snot season, and mm. now it's, at least in the, in the UK, it's in part being covered by snow uh, and all the delights that brings. Yes, well, we've had snow here in, um, in Sweden since early November and daytime temperatures between minus five and minus ten consistently. A bit colder a couple of weeks ago. Anyway, I digress. and I apologise. A lot, as usual, to talk about in this issue. And uh, I think you picked up a theme in the papers we're going to discuss. Is that right? I think so. This time, the theme might be uh, taking the long view. Basically, so taking downstream consequences into consideration now, as well as looking back, so learning from upstream events and being present in the now, in, informed by history and also with the future in mind. And I think the, the papers we discuss have a, an added value to that. So it sounds a bit cryptic, maybe, um, but when we discuss the papers, we can see how that pans out. The first of uh, the five papers that we will discuss today is about our understanding, or maybe better to say lack of understanding, of long-term consequences after childhood pulmonary tuberculosis. So the paper's called Pulmonary Function Outcomes After Tuberculosis Treatment in Children, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis by Yao Long Liu at Charles Darwin University in Australia and colleagues in Australia and Singapore. So this would be right up your alley, Nick. What, what were your thoughts about this paper? Yeah, right up my alley. But an angle, I have to admit, I hadn't really given much consideration to before. So as you all know, TB is a disease with a multi-millennial history. And unfortunately, still a disease that is lurking in the, not even the shadows, is highly prevalent. In 2021, for example, between one and a half and two million were infected. Thankfully, there are good treatment regimes and TB in general doesn't end in premature death. In general, of course, there is a, an associated uh, mortality. As with many diseases, we now need to move from survival per se to best survival possible, uh, a familiar theme. And for pulmonary TB, that means trying to enhance lung function long term, or at least start by assessing it. So there's a fair understanding of pulmonary function in adults after TB infection, but much less so about children's outcomes. Arguably, it's even more important to grasp this, given the potential for an outsized effect size taking into consideration lung growth. In other words, the earlier the insult, the more magnified the long-term consequences become. So the authors uh, performed a systematic review and meta-analysis. Out of an initial 8,000 or so records, five studies were ultimately included in the analysis. And the studies pertain to just under 600 children, mainly living in Africa. It's enough to say that performing lung function children can be challenging and doing this in a low and middle income country is even more challenging. So the authors are appropriately careful in their conclusions given the sparse data. But it's safe to say that longer-term follow-up for children post-tuberculosis is required. And the salutary bottom line is that no longer can one conclude that TB treatment ends with the last 
antibiotic dose. Rachel, from medicine to food, or is this really a switch in focus? Mm, Well, for me it isn't, Nick. I think food's medicine. And I think we need to pay more attention to uh, to this. And so I was delighted to see uh, the paper, Caring for the Carers, The Time Has Come to Feed Parents in Hospital by Helen Hare. She's based at NHS Lothian in Scotland. And the paper gives a viewpoint and a narrative on food provision to parents whilst their child is in hospital. Now, it makes sense to me to make provisions for parental basic needs whilst their child is in, in hospital because the you know even if you don't care too much about the parents per se, one might want to care about the child as best as possible. And when a stressed parent's also hungry, thirsty, tired, it's not difficult to see that that may not be a good thing for, uh, for said child. So Dr. Hare gives us something to think about. Now, if there isn't any international or national legislation per se, so we're not legislated to do these things, there is a guidance that's available, but the rights of the child, which is legislation, doesn't go into the rights of the child per se when they're in hospital and how that translates to our actions. At least we need to look at the guidance that is out there Um, our empirical evidence, and then at local level make arrangements for parents or carers to be well-nourished. Because there's like even practical things like popping out uh, to get some food, which is not necessarily the best quality food, and they're missing ward round, those types of things. And especially when children are in hospital for a long time, this becomes really wearying. So what I would like to see is that there is high quality food provision, not just any old food, but high quality food provision for children and their families, and that it gets as much attention as we currently focus on medication, for instance. So I really think food should take central place in in health provision. And I'm uh, really grateful that Dr. Hare has uh, brought this to our attention. And whilst we're on the topic of food, Nick, Um, What struck you in the next paper? Nutritional blindness from avoidant restrictive food intake disorder or ARFID. Recommendations for the early diagnosis and multidisciplinary management of children of risk from restrictive eating behaviours by Sarah Szymanski at Bristol Eye Hospital and colleagues in Bristol in the UK. This was interesting too, and um, coincidentally interesting theme here, um, a link between these two papers even though they're coming from rather different angles. So avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, or ARFID for short, is a reasonably new entity. Um, Many of you will be familiar to it in the area of uh, food-associated disorders. So it's not an anorexia, it's subtly different. So the key phenotype is that there may be an avoidance of certain foodstuffs or limitations in the amount of food eaten. And over a period of time, Uh, this then can lead to micronutrient deficiencies and illness. Um, For children with ARFID, the main goal is simply avoidance of certain items rather than a weight loss target. And ARFID can be related to the sensory aspects of food and might therefore be more prevalent in children with autistic spectrum disorders. The combination of nutrient deficiency and compounded by difficulties in communication, particularly in this group, uh, may then lead to life-changing consequences, including, when it's extreme, 
loss of vision. So the authors review the relationship between food intake and vision, and then they discuss the challenges of screening children with ARFID for micronutrient deficiency and vision loss, and then issue with an outline of how to respond to these challenges in a system and multidisciplinary team. There are some helpful practical examples as well, such as in a potato-based preferred diet, a seven-year-old will require 10 kilos of crisps per day. And uh, I have no idea how many packets that equates to, a couple of hundred perhaps, to meet the daily requirements of vitamin A. So there's essentially none in crisps, which to no one's surprise, I guess. One can imagine a body habitus to go with that amount of concomitant energy intake. So it may not necessarily be a body habitus to alert us and that there may be a problem with micro in intake at the, at the same time as the child ostensibly appears well fed. So ask about the dietary intake more than not. Um, this will give an idea about potential nutrient insufficiencies. The other thing that struck me is that one doesn't need to wait on blood results to start with interventions. It may be quite difficult to get blood in these situations. And then as we know, vitamin levels, particularly they're looking at metabolic biomarkers, proxies, uh, take a moderately long time to come back of the order of a week or even weeks. So another interesting spoke to this was uh, the discussion on interventions while awaiting results. And then finally, it made me think about malnutrition and how many children are still not receiving the food that they require. So that's a separate topic, but it's related and should never be forgotten in this sort of discussion. So now we focused on now and the future. Uh, the last two papers we're going to look at are about history and the now. Mm, thanks, Nick. And, th and thanks for mentioning the, the wider issue of malnutrition just there. I think even so, as a UK-based journal, we need to have a slightly wider uh, lens. So on that wider lens, so do, we talked about timelines and we've, we've looked at the future. And now there's two papers, both of them slightly unusual in, in their different senses, and both of them go, go back, go back in time. So the, the first paper is Perspective of Adult Offspring of Participants Recruited to a Randomised Trial in Pregnancy, a qualitative study by Nike, Frankie and colleagues at Liggins Institute University of Auckland in New Zealand. It's intriguing to think about the question, what we are asking the prospective parent uh, to think about on behalf of their still-to-be-born offspring. And then what might that prospective adult have to say about that down the line? And as paediatricians, we're quite used to having uh, decision-making conversations with parents um, and, where possible, also with children. So it's interesting to ponder the longer-term follow-up with adults in a study that was conducted before they were born and indeed did not have personhood at that time. So that, that made me think, uh, Nick, about going back in time mm. and uh, so, so as there, the decisions we make now, how do they pan out in the, in the future? Absolutely. Another look back, this is the last paper, uh, Eugene Strayler at Newcastle University tells the story of Freiherr von Munchausen, 
uh, and two disorders named after him, Munchausen syndrome and Munchausen by proxy. So what would you say is the message here, Nick? Well, that's a good question. Other than that, that there are descriptive names for these two syndromes that's fabricated or induced all this or perplexing presentation. It reminded me as a, a bit of a chicanery away from the the topic that are the incredible number of syndromes named after, uh, let's be honest, usually men that we then have to memorize. It probably makes more sense to leave names to people. But uh, another digression, pretty much as we started. But that's why discussing atoms is so interesting and enjoyable. There are obviously more papers which you can check out on the site, many more. We've just chosen those that um, we felt were useful in terms of discussion. Do listen to the podcast on the usual uh, platforms and we'll be back again in a few weeks time for the April Atoms. So it's uh, goodbye from me. Bye from me. Thanks, Rachel. Bye for now.